Hey everyone, this is Leela Sinha. Welcome to Power Pivot, the podcast version two. This is where we talk about business, leadership, ethics, community, and the way it all fits together. I'm glad you're here. Hi everyone, and welcome to Power Pivot. This is one of our bonus episodes. I get to interview someone fabulous, and today's fabulous guest is Lauren Elizabeth. She is a um, marketing consultant, I think. She's <laughs> shrugging at me. Um, and what she does is she focuses on pleasure. Now, those of you who have been with me for a long time know that I have a website called Body of Pleasure, and that pleasure has been at the center of my work for a long time, even though it's not something I lead with anymore, but she does. And I was super excited to see her doing it. And so I am super excited to bring you together today to give you the opportunity to get to know her a little bit. And um, as you all know, I'm not a big fan of like pre-written bios, so I'm going to let her introduce herself. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much, Leela. I'm so excited to be here. (sighs) Yeah, marketing consultant, coach, uh, business mentor. I have been building and growing online businesses for myself and for my clients for about seven years now. And Uh, You know, when I first got into the online space, it was all about funnels uh, and, you know, urgency and blinky timers in the emails about how long until the program closes, but it's an evergreen program. So like there really is no timeline. And it just- I I just want to recognize that Lauren is like dancing this story (laughs) out as she's talking. (laughs) Yeah, it just like didn't feel good to me. Um, and, you know, I signed up for course after course looking for a way to, um, when I first got into coaching, I wasn't teaching marketing. I was really helping people come into their own authentic expression, helping people tap in with their own physical cycles and working with the seasons. Um, and, by that nature of, of like the nature of that work, it just didn't make sense to be like squeezing myself into these marketing boxes. Um, so I spent a few years, really 2018, 2019, and 2020, really digging into what it could look like to show up as my full self online, to let people see the more messy side of me as a human and to let that be part of my marketing. And, you know, I think in our conversation that we had recently, I said I was born a hedonist. And then I learned through years and years of social programming that seeking pleasure made me um, lazy, made me slutty, made me dirty, right? There was all of these like negative social and cultural associations with seeking pleasure. Um, And also I see business as such a powerful way for creating change in our communities and in the culture that we live in. And so I had to figure out like, how do I bring this pleasure centered version of myself, this part of me that wants to have time and space to just enjoy my life, how do I bring that into my business? How do I bring that into my marketing? And what does it look like to balance the pleasure piece of my work with the purpose piece of my work? 
And so uh, really, you know, starting in 2020, but really in 2021, and then this year, I've really focused on supporting my clients in creating marketing strategies and shaping their offers, um, you know, looking at pricing through this pleasure-centered lens. How do we as business owners feel good marketing our business, sharing our body of work with the world? And also, how do we honor the desires and the pleasure and the joy of the people that we are working with? And it's really, um, it's really just been so interesting to see the vast spectrum of pleasure and how it's different for every single one of us. And really, I just feel so lucky that I get to be exploring pleasure and marketing with these brilliant humans that, um, that are in my spaces. Thank you. So when you changed, like when you were like, okay, enough with this, like, false front kind of marketing, we're going to bring some reality into this space. Was that part of the, the kind of um, authenticity, I'm making air quotes, authenticity trend? You know, so this is something that I've kind of struggled with is like, I felt like I never really fit in into the spaces that I was in. Oh and my so, God, you know, that's such a <laughs> You know, like I just was like, uh, I'm not enough of this for these people. I'm not enough of this for these people. And the authenticity I'm too much trend, of this for other people. Yeah. The authenticity trend, um, it felt like it actually made it harder for me. Like when I was like, oh, we're supposed to be authentic, I was like, wait a minute, does that mean that what I've been isn't? authentic. Um, oh, well then I need to get more clear on who I am. And it almost confused me a little bit more, this like authenticity trend. Um, but like really what it was for me was recognizing that when I was trying to keep it all together, when I was trying to be the professional version that I thought I had to be, to be a successful business owner, it never, it didn't connect. And I actually, I think about, this is a story that I've told often, is that when I first got into coaching and I was doing, you know, live trainings online or doing videos, I used to talk in this very sweet, <laughs> smooth voice. And then people would get on calls with me and be like, wait a minute, like you are not the person that I thought you were. And I realized like, oh, I need to figure out how I can feel safe and how I can feel comfortable bringing the sort of like sassy big sister vibes, um, not in the name of like being authentic, but like in the name of being myself and really, you know, kind of, this is maybe like a, a tangent here, but one of the key pieces of pleasure is consent, Right. And if the way that I'm showing up online is not the same that I am showing up in my more intimate spaces, you know, in my client sessions, in my group calls, right? I'm not really giving people the opportunity to consent to being in my spaces. And so while authenticity, showing up as our true selves, it was very trendy and it, it actually was kind of confusing for me. Um, figuring out how to show up that way for myself, not only was it better for my business, but it actually allowed me to embody this um, value of consent 
in my business? I don't know if I answered your question there. <laughs> yeah, you did. You did. And actually you've given a great, like consent is so important. And I came of age like in the middle of the evolution of consent culture. Um, mm-hmm. And in the middle of that time when we were moving from like just running up and hugging someone to stopping and asking if people wanted a hug, like that was my high school and early college years. And, and with, this conversation about consent, there was and still is this kind of parallel conversation about power, mm-hmm. right? Because consent assumes in order to consent, you have to have the power to say no. In order mm. to consent, you have to have alternatives, which means that you have options, which means that you have the resources to have options. And in various parts of our lives, it shows up in various ways, right? But but I'm thinking about this in terms of how we show up online and how we present ourselves and what we're inviting people to consent to be part of. And the way that as business owners, you know, if folks who listen to this podcast a lot have heard me talk on and on about like, as a business owner, you have power, you have power, you have power. Even if it's just in your little tiny microcosm of the world, you still have power and you can change what is normative. You can change what people expect of the world by treating them better. You can teach them that they have the right to be treated better. You can give them the experience of being treated better. You can change what they then expect of the next person they interact with. Yeah, And I think that... (laughs) And this consent thing is so rich there. Like, I feel like I could do a whole, you know, 10 minute podcast episode on it. But, but what I'm interested in asking you is like, how do you, um, how do you handle the power that your business gives you around this consent? Like the consent piece sounds really important to the way that you think about your business. How do you, how do you handle the consent and the power in a way that's ethical, like what are the things that you do to make sure that you stay ethical? And this isn't like a challenge to your ethics at all. This is the question I ask a lot of people because this is one of those major questions we have to wrestle with as we increase our power. How do we handle it? Yeah. So I think for me, consent really is about a few things. Like the first is just being really transparent with my people. Um, I really value transparency. And so, you know, just like practically some of the things that I do is like at the beginning of a masterclass or a workshop, if I'm going to pitch something at the end of the workshop, I tell folks up front. Mm-hmm. Right. Hey, thanks for coming to this workshop. At the end, I'm going to talk about this new container. If you, if you know it's not a good fit or if you're not interested, don't worry about sticking around. But just so you know, I'm going to be talking about that at the end. Um, I also like for folks who are on my email list, when I announce a new container, I also send out an email that lets people opt out of mm-hmm. those emails, right? So those are just some of the practical things um, that I'm doing in my marketing to bring a little bit more consent into these relationships. Because yeah, if you think about like this idea of a funnel, like it just kind of grosses me out. It's like this slot. And it's like, I want to be real that like, if you have an email list and you are sharing free value and you have paid offers, right? The concept of a funnel, it, it still exists in your business, right? And language really matters. (laughs) And so when I think of a funnel, I think of like slipping down on the edge and then just like falling uncontrollably into this 
hole where the only option is to shell out $10,000 for a program that I may or may not actually need. It sounds like the worst pitcher plant ever. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And so, you know, I want folks who, like the people that I'm working with, I want them to be making deeply informed decisions about investing in themselves through my offers, right? Like we've all, I don't know, I would say we've all, I have definitely, and I know many of my clients uh, just through conversations that we've had, have invested in containers, thought that they were going to be different, thought they were going to be the thing that solved the problem. And then ultimately it didn't turn out to be a good fit. I know I've done that. Yeah. And I think, you know, as consumers, it's our, it is our responsibility to do our due diligence and to take some time to research the people that we're purchasing from. Like there is some consumer responsibility, but I think, you know, if we follow that same line of thought, then it is individual families' responsibility to solve the recycling issue and to, you know, solve the climate crisis. And like, no, we need to be looking to these organizations that have more power to be creating systems and to take responsibility for the impact of their offers. So, you know, we can talk about this power at a high level, right? Like massive corporations who aren't taking responsibility for the impact of their products and their work. But then I think when we zoom back towards the coaching industry or healers or uh, service providers, uh, we do have a responsibility to be transparent and to be honest about how our work works. And something that I see a lot of, and it's still something that I'm sort of navigating myself is like testimonials and like Mm. only sharing the most flowery, beautiful, like miracle testimonials and like not being honest about the fact that some of the people who work with me don't get the exact results that they think that they thought they were going to get. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean that they didn't learn something. It doesn't mean that they didn't grow. It doesn't mean that they didn't get value. It just means that things don't always work out the way that we think or the way that we hope. And what works for one person isn't going to necessarily work for someone else. And I'm, I try to be really transparent with that. And I'm a human. And I acknowledge that like sometimes it's hard to like hold all of this when we're trying to make enough money to survive in this hyper-capitalist system. And so, yeah, it's, it's, I think part of the thing that I, I want to be sharing with my work and with like part of my marketing strategy is to admit my imperfections and to normalize the fact that like, we're all just figuring it out. Yeah. And really to invite people into this practice of not making ourselves wrong when we do have a misstep. Or when we do something that like maybe doesn't feel right, can we trust ourselves to clean up and repair any messes that are made in our containers? That's what leadership is. That's what I want to be doing with the power that I have in my business. And like, yeah, it's a process of learning for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, I think that globally we're going through a, kind of a much larger process Mm. of cleanup where 
where we had for a while this idea that we wanted our figureheads and our leaders to look perfect. Hmm. And then like in England for a long time, there was a, a kind of a tacit rule that, that you just didn't dig dirt on the Royal family. You just like, that's, we don't do that to people because that's not their job, right? Their job is to be publicly whatever, but if it's hidden, leave it hidden. They're trying to hide it. There's a reason. And, and now we're moving into this. And this is true in, in like clergy spaces too, where it used to be that, that, the clergy were supposed to be like this Im- impervious facade of perfection. And now it's like, we've got to be able to talk about the challenges and the problems and the, the, the reasons that things don't work and the wobbly table legs and the missing stairs in communities and, and missing stairs. Uh, um, I just want to explain what I just said, missing stair in, in, a lot of um, especially sex positive and sexuality oriented communities is shorthand for somebody that everybody in the community knows is a problem, but nobody has actually said it publicly. And so it's just kind of this whisper network thing and new people to the community often fall on the missing stair before they find out the missing stair is a missing stair. And then, and then they become part of this kind of whisper network. um, And so people continue to get injured by this person in the community because the community hasn't figured out how to set a boundary around that person's presence or behavior. Mm. Um, so, so we end up with, and this is true in the business world too, right? How many people out there were like, well, it's not polite to drag someone in public. And honestly, I don't really, I, I don't really have any use for dragging people in public. I don't think that's right. a particularly effective means to change, but I also think that sometimes they're, repeated injuries and people don't want to talk about those injuries because they're ashamed because they feel like it's their fault because whatever. And, and a, that feels like crap and B it doesn't allow us to be in integrity. Mm, Yeah. One of my mentors, someone who I've trained with around copywriting, Kelly deals, who is a feminist and culture building, creative marketer, genius human, um, really doing magical work in blending politics and business. Um, And she says that we should name patterns and not people. And she has like very rigorous rules for herself around when she actually will name a particular person and the problems that they are creating within an industry, within relationships. And it's often like a power measurement. Like how much power, like am I going to be harming this person's livelihood if I name this, if I name name them specifically? Um, I don't need to go into all the details of her sort of rules, but that always stuck with me. It's like, can I educate my people on the patterns that are problematic rather than pointing to an individual who likely is just replicating what they were taught. And that person who taught them was just replicating what they were taught. And it's like, yes, we need to be responsible. Yes, we need to, again, do our due diligence around understanding how our power impacts the people we engage with. And also, like, I can't blame myself for all of capitalism and all of white supremacy because I have lived in that system and I have perpetuated it. Can I take responsibility over that, how I've internalized it? And can I admit to where I've made mistakes? 
Absolutely. Can I aim to do better? Absolutely. But I love this idea of naming patterns and educating our people so that they are now aware of like, oh, I need to be looking out for these kinds of behaviors in coaches. I need to be looking out for these kinds of behaviors um, in politicians. I need to be looking for people who are putting on this facade of perfection because like we know that no human is without flaw. And so I, I, I appreciate what you're saying around this shift that we're seeing in society where I think as it used to be like the people who are on the pedestals, we want to keep them on the pedestals and everyone else just gets to fight for scraps. <laughs> but like now I think we are seeing this shift to people wanting to relate to other people. And part of that is being willing to point out a flaw and not immediately be met with, yeah, silencing or canceling for pointing out something that doesn't feel right. So how do you, how do you distinguish between what would be right or appropriate or good to share as an individual and what would be right or good or appropriate to share as a leader or a business owner or a public figure? Because mm. I feel like there's a difference. Sure, yeah. I would love to say that like, I show up as an individual very similarly to the way that I show up in my business and as a leader in my business. And I think where the difference is, is like, this is a really excellent question. I think that like, you know, if I'm in a, if you and I are having a conversation and you're like, oh, you know, I know that you've worked with so-and-so mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm thinking about signing up for this program, you know, what was your experience? As an individual, I'm going to be honest with you about my experience. Mm-hmm. You know, if I was harmed or if I witnessed harm or if I felt unsafe I feel like as an individual, I would share that with you. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would use my business platform. Similarly to what you said, I have no interest really in dragging individual people. However, I do think that there is a responsibility to, like I said, name these patterns. And if someone asks me about the specifics, for me, it's really about like, it goes back to this, like, I don't want to be causing harm to people who are just replicating what they've been taught, you know? And so, yeah, this is a really interesting question. And I think that what it comes down to is being honest in individual conversations, being honest when someone is asking for my personal experience and not using my business as a platform to harm other business owners. And how about, how about your own stuff? Like when I was in seminary, what they strongly suggested that we do is if, if some, if we had experienced some kind of personal injury or personal, like a difficult experience, we wanted to use it in a sermon that we not use it right away. Mm. Right. Cause when mm-hmm. it's super raw, you might say stuff that you wouldn't say after you've like composted that for a while. Yeah, Totally. And, and figuring that out, I think is a lifetime 
process. Like I don't think anybody is ever perfect at it, mm-hmm. but, but I think that that's one of the things that I often see in business owners for like of almost all sizes until you get to the size where you have like a publicity person vetting everything that comes out of your mouth in public. We, I think that we see this a lot with people having a bad day or a bad experience, or especially if they are the, the recipient of some negative feedback publicly. And then their immediate response, because they feel like they have to have one, is, is maybe a little more raw than would be useful. Mm-hmm. And it often shifts the entire public perception of someone's business. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I am like very much a verbal processor. And so one of the lessons I've had to learn in my business is like when shit hits the fan, like I don't need to immediately be turning that into business lessons for my people. I don't immediately need to be teaching on that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that honestly, you know, not to like plug ethical coaching, but this is why having a coach or a therapist or someone who you can go to and process with is so important because, you know, in the times in my business where I haven't had that kind of support and I've been in my own processing around it, it especially the way that social media is set up, it almost feels like and this is like even gross to think about, but like if I go post some like ranty, you know, like you said, raw, maybe less useful thing on social media, it's going to get a lot of likes. It's going to get a lot of engagement. It's going to, and like, maybe that's a good thing. And it actually makes me feel good to be seen in that way. And also like, that's not necessarily as a coach, it's not my job to be spewing the like unprocessed stuff onto my people, onto the audience, people who are reading my content. And so I think there's, you're right, that there is like this fine line of like bringing our whole selves into our businesses and like letting ourselves be seen in the messiness, right? Again, air quotes, messiness. And also like knowing when something has been processed enough to share in a way that is valuable, mm-hmm. you know, and that even just like brings up, right. I think one of the things I talk about a lot with my, with my people is like, we get to be vulnerable, but we don't have to curate our vulnerability. And so like, yeah, that, that does bring up a question like, well, is that curating vulnerability is like not sharing my, like the raw processed or unprocessed emotions. Is that curation of like who I am online? And like, maybe, um, and I think that's sometimes appropriate. Like, I think it's okay. You know, I'm, I, one of the very first business coaches I worked with is Mark Silver, who I absolutely love, 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 cannot work with him because his style is way too expansive for me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, But every time I get an expansive who wants the same kind of philosophical underpinnings that I have, but with a very different approach, I send him to Mark. And he, at least at that time, I don't know if he's still doing this. He talked extensively about the role of the veil and the way that like, it allows you to decide who gets to see your whole self. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's okay. Like, I think that social media makes money off of us making 
making risky decisions online because risk brings up all that biochemistry that invites people to engage and gets people excited and gets people involved and keeps them there watching, reading. Mm. But it's okay to decide that social media is not a place where you want to take that level of risk. Absolutely. It's okay to decide that like, I want to be real, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I want to be vulnerable. Mm. I don't want to be vulnerable with all of Twitter. <laughs> the only things I'm going to put on Twitter are things that I don't feel particularly vulnerable about. Because if I feel vulnerable enough about them that some kind of weird firestorm over them is going to make me shut down, I'm probably not going to put them on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think too, like, this is really interesting. And again, why having spaces where we do feel safe to bring it and where we were like, at least for myself as someone who needs that external processing, like if I, you know, if I don't have spaces that I'm a part of people who understand the realms that I'm working in, if I don't have spaces like that where I can go and share and process, then I end up dumping it all on my partner or all on my best friend who are both like, okay, thank you. I'm glad to support you. And also like, we've been talking about this now for five days and like, will you please get another container, please? (laughs) Please. (laughs) Um, And, and so I think that, you know, I love what you said around, I don't want to be vulnerable on Twitter with everyone on Twitter. And I'm like, okay, yeah, as a leader, I have a responsibility to my people to show up in my values. And like sometimes, like I said, when shit hits the fan, I need to put my values aside for a second and like just be a human. And I wouldn't show that to a stranger on the street necessarily, right? Like I wouldn't like be putting, I wouldn't be like putting myself in a Macy's window to process my pain and trauma. So then why would I be doing that on social media? And I, I love this distinction between being real and being super vulnerable in, on a platform where literally billions of people can witness Right. They have access. Like you don't know which people are going to walk by your Macy's window. Some of them are probably going to be very nice. A lot of them are probably not. And, and a lot of them, you know, potentially are going to be more excited by you being like all bloody and smearing on the window than if you're just, you know, sitting there drinking some tea. But to me, being able to say, I am being in my values because because you just said that you like have to put your values aside so that you can be real, like be vulnerable. And and to me, my values include being discerning about where I share what and knowing mm. who I'm talking to and understanding the limits and the consent of my audience. Right. My audience isn't they didn't show up to see every single last drop of blood come out of my veins. Mm. They're, they're not into gore. And I don't want to cultivate an audience that is because Mm. an audience that is, is eventually going to come from my blood. Hmm. Yeah. I just had a pause there. That is. And I think that that's, yeah, you like very, very much struck me with that. Um, I'm, 
I'm feeling like there's there's this thing in the coaching industry specifically that like kind of rubs me the wrong way, but I, I think that it's somewhat connected to this what you're sharing here is like, there's this thing about how, like, if you only, cause I, when I, and in marketing specifically, I talk about leading with pleasure and desires rather than doubling down on pain points. Right. I love your, I, I see your short video, short form videos come across my feed periodically and I'm like, Oh, yay. Oh, thank you. And I think that like, that's, um, you know, by doubling down on pain, we are making people feel responsible for the obstacles and the experiences that, have been projected onto them by an unjust system. And so, yes, it's important to understand the pain, but I'm not going to like pour salt and like rub that into the wound as a part of my marketing. But I hear some people saying like, don't, you don't want to like, you don't, don't pain, don't use pain points because then you will attract people who are obsessed with their own pain or you'll attract people who are, you know, and like all of that kind of like makes me feel like, bleh. I'm making skeptical faces. (laughs) But, but there is this piece of like, if I am a vulnerable, bloody mess on the internet all the time, then I am cultivating an audience of people who are craving that sort of vulnerable, like, yeah, vulnerable, bloody painfulness from me. And do those people really want a pleasure-centered business? Or do they just like like to watch the drama unfold? I mean, they might. I think that one of the interesting things about working with pleasure so deeply and power, honestly, is that a lot of the people who come to this work really do want something different. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're living in an experience where something external or internal is looping them through that pain situation over and over again. And they would like it to please stop. But as we all know, or as many of us know, um, cause I talk about it all the time. Everybody must know it. Um, neuronal pathways get driven in deep. They get ground in deep and it's a really hard process. I'm, I don't talk about this very often, but when I was growing up and for most of my young adulthood, I i guess I can say that like it's in the past now because I'm 47. Um, I lived with daily chronic anxiety and depression mm-hmm. and nothing really helped. And then one day I went to see a naturopathic doctor to help get treatment for something else, a different health issue. And she said to me, it doesn't matter if we can solve this health issue or not, if you're dead. So the first thing we have to do is address your depression. Fair enough. So she did all of her research. She, she did a three hour intake and then she came back and she said, okay, I've got a a homeopathic medicine. I'd like you to try homeopathic remedy. And I had never done homeopathy before. I didn't really believe in it. I was very skeptical. My father's a chemical engineer. My mom's a mathematician. My brother has a degree in AI. Like this, I am the weirdo in my family. And also like, this was even a little out there for me. I was like this, I don't understand how this could be working. Um, Don't tell my grandmother. She believes in homeopathy. But anyway, she gave me this remedy and I 
tried the first and she told me like, if we need to stop this, this is not like a regular psychoactive drug. We can just like, you just have to eat a strong mint or coffee and then it'll stop it, stop the action. And then you can, we can like clear out your system and start over within the week. And I was like, oh, well, then that makes this low stakes, no brainer. I'll try it. And I took the first remedy and it drove me into one of the worst episodes of depression I've ever had in my life. And I was like, well, it works. Like it was very convincing because I went from fine to terrible. And then she was like, and I contacted her. And after a few days, she's like, okay, I don't even care if this is a healing crisis. This is too much risk to be taking. Like, stop it. Go eat some mint or drink some coffee and we'll try something else. She gave me something else and it worked literally overnight. It was a three dose thing where I took it like morning and evening and morning. And by evening of the second day, the depression that I had lived with most of my life was just missing. Hmm. It was like somebody had come into that room in my brain and just cleared out all the furniture, everything. And I didn't know how to work with an undepressed brain. I didn't have any neuronal pathways for maneuvering an undepressed brain. And I had to learn it. Hmm. I had to learn it from scratch. I looked at one of my close friends and I said, it's gone. It's just gone. What, what, who am I without my depression? So I feel like when people come to this work and they're like, I want more pleasure. I want more um, power. I want, I think that that's genuine. Mm. And I think that we cultivate the way that people are with us, especially as public figures by what we offer and by how we respond to what what we're offered in return. Mm, thank you for sharing that story. And yeah, I totally agree about like coming to pleasure. And, and I think that like, what's so interesting is kind of like the opposite of what the story that you just shared is like folks have, I, a lot of the people who come to me are like, deep in this like purpose work of like, this is the work they know that their skill set is going to completely transform the people who they're here to work with. Yeah. And they're so in it that they have forgotten to care about themselves. They don't have a skill set for putting pleasure into all of these layers of their work. And so mm-hmm. it's like, they have a room in their house that has no furniture mm-hmm. and they're like, I don't know how, to utilize this space. And so like this bringing pleasure in, it can feel very foreign and like talking about neural pathways, it can feel very unsafe. Yeah. To just experience pleasure in the body. Right. And especially, you know, a lot of my conversations around pleasure are like not talking about the sexual aspect of pleasure. Pleasure is so much more than that. Oh, it's so much more than that. And I think that that's kind of one of the things that sort of distinguishes my work from a lot of the other people who are talking about pleasure in business is I'm very much a fan of sexual pleasure, but it's not the foundation of pleasure for me. It's there's so much more to it. And a lot of the people who I have found are desiring to work with me, but are resisting it is because they have a history of sexual trauma. They have a history of pleasure being used against them. Mm-hmm. And so there is this process of like, how do we start small? What is the smallest dose of pleasure that we can feel safe in? 
Um, and that's going to look so different for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love this analogy of like a room being cleared out and, and all of a sudden there's not, there's nothing in there because I think a, for a lot of my people, the opposite is true. There's this room in their house that was made for pleasure and the door is locked. And uh-huh. when they peep through the keyhole, there's like literally nothing in there or it's all covered in dusty sheets, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the, the work is how do we, you know, again, I am not a therapist. I'm not trained in healing modalities that make me feel comfortable to be like digging into sexual trauma with people. And also talking about the pleasure that we feel by putting our feet in the sand Mm -hmm. or the pleasure that we feel by like sipping a warm cup of coffee in the morning that can activate the, the pain and trauma that we have felt associated with other experiences of pleasure. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's such an interesting realm to be working in and to be connecting it with marketing. A lot of people just look at me with like the big question mark above their head, like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think it is that makes marketing so painful? Mm. Well, marketing is nervous system work. Like marketing is inviting us to take up space and to like really own how good we are at a particular thing. And like society, unless you are a very particular, uh, unless you hold very particular identities, uh, we are not supposed to take up space. And as a fat woman, my whole life, I've been like, how do I get this thing smaller? How do I shrink my body? How do I, how do I take up less space? And so for me, marketing and like being loud and being seen is was, has been, and occasionally still is going against all of that programming. Right. You know, and so I think it's painful because it's an invitation for us as the marketers to step outside what we've been told we're allowed to be by the dominant culture, loud and owning how brilliant we are, taking up space, being a little bit messy in front of people who might pay us money, asking people to pay us for things that come naturally to us, right? One of the things that a lot of my clients who are in uh, like more healer roles, they have this narrative that they shouldn't charge for their work because healers should, should just give healing. And capitalism makes that really hard though. Pardon? Capitalism yeah. makes that really hard. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to say that healing should be freely available, but in order for that to happen and for your healers to thrive, right, there has to be some provision for your healers' sustenance. And Absolutely. in capitalism, that's money. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, that's one of the things that I have to do, I end up talking about a lot is like, okay, well, how do we make receiving money for your work feel pleasurable? Because for all of these years, you have felt shame around that. What allows it to feel good to receive money? What allows it to feel good to say, like, I want this much money to provide this service? And it's such a, a great question to be asking. I think for, for me, so often, it's like, there's so much pain and struggle associated with spending money, mm. with being able to pay someone else to do things, that 
if I'm not really careful, I project that onto everybody that I'm asking to pay me. Mm -hmm. And so it's this cycle of like, exactly. I, I imagine and, you know, empathy and blah, blah, blah. I imagine that it is painful for this person to spend this money that they would rather not spend this money, but they need what I'm offering so much that they're going to have to spend the money that they would rather not spend instead of recognizing that for a lot of people, it's a pleasure to be able to pay someone well to do something that they're good at on your behalf. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, right. There's this, um, there is a dynamic that I think is important that like for people who don't have that pain and struggle associated with spending, Typically, it's because they are have more resources. And so it's like, how do we position ourselves to serve the people who like have the resources to pay us? And also, how do we not exclude the people who don't have the resources? Like, what does it look like to create a, a strategy in our businesses? that allows us to serve the people who are happy and willing to pay us whatever we are charging without leaving behind the folks who do not have resources um, or, or their resources are being invested in other spaces specifically so that they can survive, right? Like, what does that look like? And, and there are different models that we can bring in. You know, I, I know a couple people who like for every four full price um, offer like p- programs they sell, they give one away for free, or they do sliding scale, and the higher the highest payment like goes into a scholarship fund. Right? There's like lots of things that we can do, and also like there is this need for all of us to be well resourced. Yeah, uh, and so like how do we do that? How do we be well, how do we have the resources that we need and create those resources for ourselves in our businesses without leaving behind a very large portion of our audience? And on the other side, I think there's a lot of, I don't know, it's, there's, there's this particular kind of built-in classism when people are hiring individual solopreneur, like small, tiny businesses where, a lot of folks will judge the skill level of a practitioner on the amount of money that they have or they seem to have or the number of clients that they have or seem to have. Mm-hmm. And so how do we as a community of business owners break that? How do we start honoring and celebrating and lifting up practitioners regardless of how much money they're making right now and instead uplift people and celebrate people and recommend people and trust people because I think there's a trust component to that people like well I can trust you other people trusted you social proof is a thing yes but also how do we trust people based on on who they are what they bring to the table the fact that what they're bringing is novel the fact that their life experiences is is different from People, I was just in a Twitter thread, I don't know, an hour ago, where um, somebody was saying, listen, the reason that that white guy from Stanford gets VC funding more easily than an underrepresented minority 
bootstrapper is because the white guy from Stanford has a network that already trusts and believes in him. And that network is supporting his application when he goes to the VC firm and asks for more money. And I said, yeah, and your network, even when you're starting a solopreneur business, like the people who know and trust you are going to be your first referrers and possibly your first clients. So if you don't know anybody who will buy from you and you don't know anybody who will talk about you, it will take you a lot longer. It will be harder. How do we change that? Yeah, yeah, that is the question. And I think too, like one of, that just goes, one of the things that I I spend a lot of time thinking about for myself is how do I leverage the privilege that I have without using my privilege to signal that I'm trustworthy enough. Does that make sense? Yeah, you don't want to virtue signal, but you do want to use it. Right. I want to use my privilege to create change, right? I, you know, I would not be where I am in my business without the support of my family, without the support of my husband. Like I have gotten through very low revenue months because I had support. Um, And like, and I want to be using my business as a channel to support people who are in similar positions. And also I don't want to be like, (laughs) I think of, you know, and and I, I don't, I'm not holding this against the people who do use this, but like the folks who like are bathing in money in their branding photos, <laughs> and like, even if it is real cash, you know, cause a lot of those, a lot of those photos are like money that they ordered off Amazon. That's not real. Uh, just in case you were wondering. And how do I talk about building successful businesses and how do I talk about taking these like intentional steps to create sustainability in our work? without using and, and, and sort of like rubbing my privilege in people's faces because no one has the exact lived experience I have. And so by saying like, do it my way and you can have my life, like that just doesn't work. Right. And I think that that's, that's where this like pr- this pleasure centered approach to marketing is so interesting because like I can't create a 10 step formula. Right. Because everyone's pleasure is going to be different. And so I'm having to constantly learn how to hold the nuance of, you know, yes, I know that if if we weave pleasure into your offers and if we make the logistics of your business pleasurable to you, I know that it's going to work in the long run, but I don't know what those logistics look like until I get on a call with you. And until, like, I can't tell you how to run a pleasure-based business, you have to decide that, but I'm here to help you figure out what that looks like and to iterate on that. But yeah, to come back to your question of like, how do we, as a collective of business owners, how do we shift this narrative from, you know, we can only trust the people who have money and resources now. (sighs) I don't know. One of the things that I do is, uh, you know, I don't use income as like a claim, particularly. Mm -hmm. Occasionally I'll talk about like, if one of my clients just had like an amazing thing, like I will say like, oh my God, one of my clients made a thousand dollars in 24 hours as a celebration of them. Sure, of course. Um, And I'm not trying to be like, I'm going to help you get to seven figures in six weeks. And like, and as I'm saying this, I'm like, but wait a minute, I do talk about helping people get to consistent 5k cash months. And so it really is this, there is so much nuance in this work. 
Um, and I don't have the answer to that question. It's a good one. How do we change this norm of only celebrating and uplifting the people who have already made it? <laughs> I think for me, it's really about like, if I have, if I have an audience that's listening, the people that I want to be talking to in public, referencing, referring to, quoting, like lifting up as an authority are the people who have skill and knowledge and talent, who are good at what they do, who are, you know, brilliant artists or musicians or coaches or consultants or thinkers or writers or whatever. And I don't care how much money they're making or how many clients they have. If I've talked to someone and they're brilliant, I want to share that person. I want to lift them up. I want to, I want to put them in the spotlight if they want, obviously if they want to be in the spotlight. And that doesn't mean that I don't also lift up people who are doing tremendous, tremendous, you know, financially or numerically like volumes of work. Like that's, that's great. I want to see, especially everybody who isn't that one demographic that's always succeeding. Um, I want, I want, I want to make that visible. I want representation, but I also, I also want to say, Hey, have you heard of this person? Because that's how people get famous. That's how people get known. That's how people get hired is because somebody else said, Hey, have you heard of this person? Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, one of the other things that we can do, um, I'm just thinking like, practically, what are the things I can implement? What's something that I could hop off this call and implement right away? And it's normalizing and celebrating results that aren't financial, right? Mm -hmm. Yes, I can celebrate that my client made $1,000 in 24 hours. And also I can celebrate that they wobbled super hard and were thinking about burning their business down and used the nervous system regulation tools that we've been working on together to like come back to center and remember why they're here. And that like in less than 24 hours, they went from here to here to here mm -hmm. and they did it on their own. They went from up to down to up for people. Yeah. Who are yeah. Of listening. course. No one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. From the peak of the mountain feeling so great to down in the pits of wanting to burn everything down to back to a place of feeling like, Oh, I actually can do this. And I know how to do this because the wobbles are normal. We all go through it. Um, and I think that that doesn't really get talked about and having a skill set to move through that is just as valuable mm -hmm. or is, is, is it's what is allow, going to allow us to get to those financial goals that we set for ourselves. And so, yeah, I think that one of the things that I do try to talk about outside of the money when I'm talking about teaching people how to do marketing is like, I'm also going to teach you how to like be with those just uncomfortable moments during the launch when things aren't going as planned, right? right? Those are the valuable skills. I'm not just going to help you get to 5K cash months, and I'm not going to be mad at you if you don't. I'm not, I'm definitely not going to be mad at you if you don't. And I'm not going to promise that. Right. Right. Like that's the goal that I'm helping people work towards. But like, I cannot promise that the timeline that works for me or the timeline that has worked for a hundred percent of my clients is going to work for that next person. 
Right. And and I think that it's just conversations like this where we are acknowledging that money is only one form of value and like a very crucial one in the system that we live in is like how we're going to change this narrative around like money being the only marker of success or trustworthiness. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We are running short on time. I could talk to you forever. <laughs> Maybe around um, two. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But I do want to give you a minute to leave our listeners with any last thoughts, and then I'll give you a moment to, to pitch your stuff and, and let us know where we can find more of you. Yeah. Thank you so much. So uh, for those of you who have been tuning in with us today, thank you for listening to me ramble about marketing and pleasure. (laughs) Um, And the one thing that I always say is that we get as business owners, as creatives, as service providers, we get to have offers and products out in the world that totally turn us on and light us up. And those offers also get to deliver massive value to our people. We do not have to choose between serving ourselves and serving the people that we're here to support. Uh, I think that so often people think that it's like, yeah, either I'm delivering massive value and supporting my people and I'm struggling or I prioritize my own joy and everyone else is just, yeah, not feeling it. And like we get to have both. Pleasure, our pleasure gets to overlap with our people's pleasure. And like that whole thing around niching down, this is where the real juice is. It's not, you don't need to find the most profitable niche. You need to just find the people whose desires and pleasure overlap with yours. And that's really where the gold is in our work. So if you are interested about learning more about marketing and pleasure and how to bring more joy and playfulness into your business, um, I would love to connect with you. I spend most of my time on Instagram, so you can follow me over there uh, at lauren.elizabeth.coaching. I'll drop the link for Leela to put in the show notes. Uh, And yeah, you can sign up for, I send a weekly email talking about pleasure and business and how we can grow our revenue and increase our impact uh, in the work that we're doing. And I would love to drop that into your inbox every day. So you can head or not every day. (laughs) I am not sending emails every day, people, (laughs) uh, just sending those like about once a week. So you can head on over to my website at laurenelizabethcoaching.com and sign up for my newsletter and stay up to date on offers and how we can work together. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And Leela, thanks for having me today. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure. This has been Power Pivot, the podcast. I'm your host, Leela Sinha. Thank you for listening. I offer gratitude for the earth and sky and the support and care of many who cross my path. Our post-production assistance is provided by William Jameson, and you can find him at jamesonav.net. You can find more of me and my work, including leadership consulting and keynotes, at intensiveinstitute.com.